0: We are making our way through the book of 1 Samuel. We just have this week and Lord willing next week. It's been a fast journey through this book and I hope it's been a blessing to you as it's been to me. And this morning we're gonna look at two chapters. It's the end of the book, 1 Samuel chapter 29 and chapter 30. I have been flying on planes since I was in high school. My first plane trip was from Detroit to Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, most times when I fly, I enjoy to, to sit next to the window. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot with kids these days, but to be able to sit close and get a glimpse out the window is always enjoyable. Uh, during takeoff and landing, it's incredible to look at the city as you're leaving or flying over uh, the oceans and mountains is one of the most enjoyable parts of flying. The legroom is not. But I read a story this week of how some pilots landed at the wrong airport and almost caused a crash. They were landing at a much smaller airport than was expected. It was actually seven miles away from the correct destination. And during the approach, the pilots were in contact with the control tower, and they were told that they were 15 miles away from their target. And they responded and said that they actually had their target in sight and were going to land anyways. Upon landing, the pilots had to stomp on their brakes extra hard to avoid going over a ledge and nearly crashing the plane. Passengers later described the landing as mayhem and the air was filled in the, in the, the plane with the stench of burnt rubber. The pilots admitted later to be shocked at the mistake and told investigators that they saw bright lights of an airport in front of them, and so they landed. They honestly thought it was the right airport. They didn't trust their instruments. They didn't even trust the control tower. I mean, how crazy is that? The pilots thought that they knew better than the instruments. They knew better than the control tower on the ground. They, they saw an airport in the distance and thought, hey, here's an airport, let's land here. And, and it wasn't the right airport. But it doesn't matter how sincere you are in landing a plane if you're landing in the wrong place. And I'm sorry to any of you that are flying this week. I'll pray for you and that your pilots will make it to your correct airport. All that to say, I think sometimes we act the same way in our life. We think we've got this covered. We think that things will eventually just work out. But the farther we go down that foolish path, the harder it is to make our way out. David experienced this when he left for the Philistines back in chapter 27. He made a foolish decision and was having a hard time now getting out of the mess that he's in. God would need to step in to save him. And that's where we left off two weeks ago. And this morning we're going to continue the journey through the book and and as I said, we have this week and next. But two weeks ago, I, I, I now want to mention this. Two weeks ago, we ended in chapter 28. And, and a few of you came up to me after the service and asked some clarifying questions about the fate of Saul. Uh, as I rushed to finish the chapter, I didn't talk much about Samuel's comment to Saul at the end of chapter 28. And the question that, I was, that was given to me was about Samuel's statement to Saul about the judgment that would come the next day. If you remember, he said to Saul and his sons that they would be with him tomorrow. And a few of you wondered, you you asked, what did that mean? Does it mean that that, that you're wrong, Jeff, about the eternal destiny of Saul and that he, in fact, would be in heaven with God's children? Well, I believe we're asking too much of the text here. I believe it means that Saul, like Samuel, as far as the world is concerned, would die. He's going to join them in death the next day. We're not there's not much insight given to us in the afterlife in the Old Testament. But every now and then, we get a little glimpse, especially David in the Psalms, who who gives us a small look over the fence. But as I read this week from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said he described the Old Testament as a man jumping, trying to see over a fence. Every now and then, he jumps just high enough to catch a little glimpse on the other side. And, And it's not till after Pentecost that all of that changes for us, for the church, and we're giving the insight then we need to, to know what happens after death, what happens and when the second coming comes, the resurrection of the body, the new heavens, the new earth. And Isaiah could, could get a glimpse, but it wasn't until the New Testament that we can see the, the, the full picture and see it clearly. All of this to say is I still believe Saul is unregenerate. Um, He would die the next day, and he would not enter heaven. But that's not what we're talking about today. That was for free. We're moving into chapter 29 and chapter 30. And I had originally scheduled uh, to preach these in separate messages, but the more I read them, the more I believed they needed to be preached together. So that's what I'm endeavoring to do this morning, which puts the final chapter for next week. And this morning, we're gonna talk about Faithfulness, primarily God's faithfulness. I didn't see it right away when I was reading, but the more I studied, the more I read, the clearer the picture became. When we come to chapter 27, we see David fleeing from Saul and hiding with the Philistines, and the enemies of God. And David believes, and I do too, that Saul wasn't gonna stop hunting him. All of the, the placating that Saul does time and again in the prior chapters is all for, for naught. Saul is going to continue to hunt David. He wants David eliminated. And so David flees, and he runs to the enemy. and he begins to, to fit in, and he deceives the enemy to, to protect himself, to protect the people that have come with him. But not, and, and that would have drastic consequences. You can read in 1 in Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, others that were leaving Saul and were fleeing to David. They had enough with King Saul. And so the the group is is gradually getting bigger and bigger, hundreds more coming. And the responsibility uh, for David was growing. More people meant more to protect, more to provide for. And I believe David is feeling the weight of these people that are following him. And David is beginning to to be weighed down by those. And he's inching so close to having to really now choose a side. What side is he going to be on? And the battle, as we read, is beginning, and David has fooled the king, King of Akish, to believe that he's on his side. But I believe it's just an act to protect himself and protect his people. And so David here, we find in chapter 29, is in a bind. He needs a way out. And David needs God to rescue him. And this morning, we're going to walk through four ways that God showed his faithfulness to David in these two chapters. And I have... Four points that I borrowed from Pastor Derek Thomas for my outline this morning. Four things. God is faithful when we're not. That's chapter 29. God is faithful even when things get worse. God is faithful even in little things. And God is faithful to redeem. And so we're gonna walk through that, Lord willing, this morning. And and as Christians, we recognize and again say we serve and love a faithful God who is there for us, one that knows our hurts and our pains and our troubles, and one who is constantly right on time. So I'm gonna pray to begin, and so I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll start. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather as the body of Christ and to worship you. And we've been able to worship in, in singing and worship in giving and and now father worship in the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Father, I pray for your people here that they would see and understand more of you that they would see and be reminded yet again that you are faithful to us. That we would understand your faithfulness to us even when we're not. You're faithful to us when when things get worse in our lives, you're faithful in just the little things, and, and you're faithful to redeem. May that sink deep into our hearts and, and, and flush its way out into our lives, and may we be changed this morning by the preaching of your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, God is faithful even when we're not this is stated a few times in the scriptures. Second 2 Timothy 2:13 2, stuck out to me as one in particular, It as if we're faithless. He remains faithful. David is in this pickle. Or as the fourth grade Sunday school class said this morning, a hairy pickle. Right, Tyler? A hairy pickle. After running from Saul to the enemy's side, he is now stuck, following the armies of the Philistines out to war against his own people. He needed to be saved from his friendship with the Philistines. What an interesting situation David finds himself. It's a a difficult place to be. If David continues to display uh, this loyalty to Achish, his his new Lord, then he's going to have to be opposed to his people. Look with me in chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at <clears throat> and the El- Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel Jez- Jez- as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by the hundreds and by the thousands and David and his men were passing on in the rear with the kish this is this has to be one of the most spiritually dangerous periods of David's life he he crossed the line when he left Israel to join the armies of the Philistines and David hasn't, hasn't fully apostatized it's not what's happening here David left and he's still deceiving the king God has to now deliver him. The events in this chapter and the one that follows is that God's grace and continual faithfulness is enough for us. The grace of God, if that's all we have, is enough to deliver us from evil. And you need to know that today, friends. No matter where you find yourself this morning, God's grace is enough to pull you out and place you where you need to be. This is where we find David. Sinfully running from God, from his people, running to the enemy. And now he needs deliverance. He needs a rescue. His double life is about to be exposed, but God's going to have to intervene. Now verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Akish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is not David the servant of Saul, uh, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? Since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. See, the commanders of the Philistine army don't trust David. And they're right. They shouldn't. He shouldn't be trusted. The last thing they wanted was to launch into war with Israel on the front uh, and, and, and an armed band of Israelites in the rear. The commanders come out here as the smart ones. They know who David is. And they repeat the same theme that's repeated a few times in this book. I'm sure it was well known in the towns of the Philistines. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. The thousands and the ten thousands were their people. They knew all about David. They know he can't be trusted. But Akish has been duped. He believes in David. He believes that David will have his back. Verse 6, then Akish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest to me, It seems right that you should march out and with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are a you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. One of the ironies of this chapter is that almost half of it is Akish defending David's loyalty, when in fact, David wasn't loyal at all. David's words here are even more interesting. If if we dig in a little bit, he's trying to persuade Akish in verse 8 to let him go out into the battle and begin to wonder what are you saying here, David? He says, Fight against the enemies of my Lord and King. Who's your Lord and King? Who's King here for David? Is it a Kish or is he showing his hand a bit by saying he will fight against the enemies of his King Saul? I mean, my mind is made up. I believe David, go, David would go out in the battle with his men and do exactly what the commanders feared what would happen. He, he would come in from behind, wait for the opportune time, and strike, thus bringing the, the victory to his people and the Philistines' end. But David isn't given this opportunity. In, in the sovereignty of God, he's being relieved of his duty. He's being released from, the, from the, the, the pickle, the hairy pickle he's in. God is showing his faithfulness even when David hasn't been faithful. God is faithful to his chosen one. And what does he use to accomplish his purposes? He uses the enemies of him. It's the commanding officers of the Philistine armies. And this text doesn't teach us that God always seamlessly works things out perfectly when we made a mess of things. But it does teach us that God will be faithful. Even when we wander away. Even in the midst of our foolishness. We're still no match for God's unrelenting mercy and grace to yank us out of those situations that we put ourselves in. And He can do it in an unfathomable amount of ways. His faithfulness doesn't have any limitations. He's even willing to use the Philistines. He can make the enemy serve us as a friend. He not only prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, But he also has the knack of making the enemies prepare the table for us. And that's what he does here. What a gracious and clever God we serve. I read a story this week, a children's story, one that I'm sure you've heard at some point, in which a woman who was alone and and out of food was telling her situation, praying to her father, and asking for daily bread. And somehow a neighbor who's who's an agnostic or atheist overheard the woman praying, decided it was time for a little fun. He went out and purchased two loaves of bread and left them at her door. And upon discovering them, the woman burst into a grateful prayer of praise. But her neighbor then hears and accosted her, come to argue, informing her that he had happened to hear her praying, and he bought the bread and placed it on her doorstep. It was not then God who had answered her prayer, but it was him. And the lady, armed and ready, responded, oh yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer, even though he used the devil to do it. God is not limited on who and what he uses for his purposes. And the character of God shines so brightly in this chapter. Are you discerning enough to see it? And David is stuck. He's placed himself in an unmovable position. He's he's backed himself into a corner. Will he tell the truth to Achish and then be exposed Will he actually go out into war against his own people, his own future, his future king? Will he turn against the Philistines in the middle of the war? What will he do? It's not just him. It's the hundreds of people counting on him to lead. David backed himself right into the precipice, and he can feel the wind at his back. And one more step back, he, he falls most surely to his death and probably the death of many others. And then the mercy of God comes. Friends, God is faithful even when we're not. Can you see how relentless the mercy of God is in this chapter? Even when his children stuck in their foolishness, their bad decisions, their lies, God and his mercy shines. And how strong, how... Tenacious! How unlet goable is the mercy of God. He holds on to us. And God is not short tempered with his children. God is not wringing his hands with us. His, his patient, patience isn't wore out. Even, even when we're away. Away from him. Some of us, some of you, regularly look to a God made in your own image, in your own frailties, in your own shortcomings. And when you fail, you believe that this God will put you out because that's what you would do. There are some that that believe they, they can never be saved because they wouldn't save them but your view of God is way too low. We make God lower when we make him like us, someone who is easily put off and someone who, who frustrates as easily as we do. But is this the God of David that we read here? Does he easily and quickly dismiss David, willing to let the promise to fall to the side? Will he deny himself? And do you see David here marching, living, and serving the enemies of God? He's caught in his own trap, stressed over what will happen next. So how will he lead his people? How will he protect them? How much longer will they have to live with these people among the, the pagans? And will God let him stew in his own mess, waiting for David to figure it out on his own? Waiting for David to, to wise up and walk away? the mercy of God steps in and finds David. The God who saved David from Saul time and again will now save David from himself. Friends, the, the mercy of God will not dry up so easily. There are some of you Believers here this morning that have convinced yourself that God's mercy will eventually wither up and die. And there have been circumstances in your lives where you're relying on your own cleverness, your own ability to manage the situation, and things progressively get worse. And now you stand just barely, nearly destroyed, and you believe that the mercy of God cannot penetrate your situation because your mercy would have been long gone. But the good news in this chapter, friends, is that no matter how bad we mess up, God's faithfulness and his mercy can come through in times of need. We need the eyes to see it, the faith to believe it. And that comes from God, that comes from his word. You, you can't muster up this faith, friends. It, God gives it to you through his word. From reading stories like this. The things God has been pulling David out and, and it seems to be happening now. Things are turning around. Verse 10, And Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So verse 11, David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David's been released and his men, and he he leaves. God provides a, a way of escape from the temptation to war against Israel. But as we come into chapter 30, you realize that David's troubles are not done yet. But we recognize and remember God is faithful even when we're not. Second, God is faithful even when things get worse. In the book of Amos, there's a graphic illustration in chapter 5 of a man that is pictured fleeing from a lion, only then to meet a bear. He runs, and I'm assuming Amos implies, from the bear to then reach a, a house. And he runs in only to catch his breath from the madness and leans against a wall and a snake bites him. He reached safely only to discover that he failed to see this other enemy there was ready to pounce. This applies to David here in chapter 30. He and his men leave Kish in the battle. Verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negreb and against Ziglag, They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. They reached their camp only to find out that it's been raided by the Amalekites. Weren't weren't these the guys that were to be wiped out by Saul in chapter 15? They're gone, right? No. Saul wasn't obedient to God's word. He left some alive. He didn't cut off the head of the snake, and it came back to bite David. We're told in these verses that the people weren't killed but were taken alive as captives. In fact, it's the standard practice because they would rather sell them into slavery and make lots of money. The shock for David and his men would have been unbearable. This has been the life of David since that faithful day where Saul's jealousy became too much. And really, if we think back, all of this stems back to chapter 17, when David stepped out into the battlefield against Goliath. If only he had stayed back. If only he had just stayed in the field, they wouldn't be in this situation, right? All the if onlys. That's usually what happens when we reach this point in trouble in our life. If if only, if only. Maybe that memory was far from his mind. We don't know. But he and his men had walked the 60 miles back to Ziglag. And, and I can imagine now the, the joy in their midst, walking and talking about how they narrowly escaped the jam. They're thinking, I can't wait to get home and have my wife's cooking. They, they've escaped this, this, this conundrum that they're in. And I'm sure the hope in their voices, they get back to see their wives, they can see their kids, and the relief that they're, they're going to be home with them. They can't wait to get back. And it all seemed too good to be true. A marvelous escape, a moment to breathe, this grand relief, only to find that they're right back into the pit again. And I'll be blunt for you this morning. This is the Christian life. I'll just keep saying it. You know, as Christians, we should just put on the sign, come suffer with us. (laughs) Jesus promised us this. And we find David and his men in the same situation. These joyous times that we experience are real in our life. They're, they're good, but they're only for a moment. And that's the point of them. They're, they're not the end. They're only these way stations in the side of the road. Your comfort is only in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can bring eternal comfort to your soul. But until that day comes when we will see Jesus face to face, we will experience pain and we will experience discomfort. And there may be times in your life where you begin to think, can it get any worse? And 1 Samuel chapter 30 tells us, yes, it can. There are seasons in your life where the present trouble is overwhelming, where The trouble's so hard and you think you can't take anymore and then comes zigzag. Then comes the the burning and, and the destruction. And I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, friends. It's hard. Sometimes the providence of God looks like a frown. But we need to remind ourselves that God isn't finished yet. You may have received more that you can handle, but God in his word says you can still trust him. David is experiencing this trouble here. David is, and his men have been released from the burden of serving a Kish in the Philistines only to come home and find everything burned to the ground and their families carried away to slavery. And their hope seems gone. In verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Sometimes in our lives, all we have left to do is weep. And they cry until they can't any longer. And I know that some of you have been there. Some of you are there even now. And friends, you need to know that God is faithful even when things get worse. God is sovereign and won't let anything happen that is outside his will. Even the dark things the terrible things, the distressing things. the sovereignty of God does bring comfort, but it also tests our faith in him. We want a God who is sovereign in all things except suffering. And when we suffer, we want a God who's smaller. We want a God who's weak who's insignificant, who's not in control. Because we can't fathom a sovereign God who allow us to suffer. It's too much for us to handle. But as the scriptures say, we need to believe and pray that God would help our unbelief. And friends, we don't need a new God, we need a new vision of God. And this is what David needs here. And he'll get there, but not yet. He will need the word of God. Verse five, David's two wives also have been taken captive. Ohenem of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. David is suffering too. His wives were taken and he's greatly distressed. It says he's, he's in a hard spot and, and things get worse because his own men began to question his leadership for the first time. Their families have been ripped from them and David is to blame. He was the one in charge. He was the one who led them this far and they want him. They want someone to blame. And so they go to the leader and they pick up stones to end David's life. And friends, this is leadership. Anyone interested in serving as a leader in church, you need to read 1 Samuel 30. This is where I need to go first when I have someone interested. This is what it looks like sometimes. People want to stone you. Ask any leader, whether in the church or not, and they will tell you that stones begin to fly sometimes. Sometimes. And part of being a leader is dealing with, with resistance. But the best thing that a doubted leader can do is continue to lead. If if the men of David's band wanted to get their wives and children back, they needed God's help, and God revealed himself only to the anointed servant David. So David would send then for the priest, but before leading the men, David needed to be led by God. Look at verse six. At the end of verse six, there. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You should underline that. This is the key to the passage. There's always a comparison in this book that we've seen between David and Saul. Like Saul in chapter 28, who was pressed into a corner when the threat of war came, he too had led his men. And where did Saul lead? Where did Saul turn? He went to a medium, he went to a witch. He went to the world because he had nowhere else to go. But where does David go? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. At the moment of utter desperation, David did the one thing that was most needed, he went to God. Both men, Saul and David, at their lowest point, both drastic differences. You need to go home tonight or tomorrow this week and read these two chapters again, chapter 28 and chapter 30. You, you see a stark difference between the two of these men. Saul's actions prove beyond question that he, has, he is unsuitable to be the king, while well, David's actions will illustrate again why he became the ideal king for Israel. When trouble comes, David strengthens himself in the Lord. When trouble finds Saul he looks for help in the world. For David, he runs to God. For Saul, he runs to himself. He runs to the world for wisdom. David strengthens himself from the Lord. In the verse 7, And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. so Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, to 200 stay behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. God answers David. He will be comforted, and God will bring the victory. God answered Saul, too, by the way. We we saw the answer two weeks ago. Saul's end would come. God is faithful even when things get worse. We need to follow the example of David here and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And how do we do that? One commentator, Roger Ellsworth, said, to strengthen ourselves in God means we remind ourselves of what scripture says about God and his promises, and we bring those to bear on the situation. Every trial causes opposing voices to ring in the ears of the child of God. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that our situation is hopeless, and the other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for the trial." Friends, I hope you understand this. I've said it. I'll continue to say it. You're always preaching to yourself. But what are you preaching to yourself? Is it the truth of God and what his word says, or is it something else? You know, David here isn't picking himself by his bootstrap, just just thinking positive thoughts and and shutting out all the negativity. No, that's, that's a bunch of hooey. David reminds himself of the promises of God. He reminds himself of God's word, the promises that were given to him, the same promise that Jonathan reminded him earlier in chapter 23. Do you remember that? When Jonathan came alongside and strengthened David, it was the word of God. That was his hope. And friends, that's how we strengthen ourselves in the Lord by, by reading his word, by memorizing his word and applying his word to our lives. God is faithful even when things get worse. Third, God is faithful even in the little things. This is the third thing I want you to see. It's it's a short one, but nonetheless, it's an important one. God is faithful even in the little things. Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. When he had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the nagab of Caleb, and we burn Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of this great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines, and from the land of Judah. You can imagine, after finding that your place where you've lived for the last 18 months to 20 months burned to the ground and your wives and your kids gone, that the grief that you would experience or the trauma of this and being accused that David's gone through, he would just be so hell-bent in getting these guys as quickly as possible. You can imagine that he, they running into this Egyptian would think, oh, you were part of this raid and wanting to kill him right then. But God is faithful even in the little things. And David's compassion and sensitivity to the situation allows God to work in a way that is uncommon. They come across this man who has been discarded. Some Amalekite has discarded this man as worthless, and God uses him to lead them to where this band of Amalekites are at. And they find him right where he says. And the enemy is dancing and enjoying the spoils from their raid. Right. See, it's, it's small, but do you see how God cares again for his people? Even in little things supplying exactly what they need. God is faithful in the little things. Fourth, God is faithful to redeem. Verse 17, And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, and David brought them back. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. See, God had promised that he would overtake them and it's now realized the mission was a, a complete success. But not only did they take back their own stuff, there was more that the Amalekites had taken in earlier raids and, and David and his men then take that. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left in the brook of Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, will, will we not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children in the depart? These men that go with David as, as the Author says, wicked and worthless fellows. Sometimes in the midst of war, they don't think too kind. They gather up all the extra spoils, and they want to split it just with themselves. They're the ones that have fought, so they're the ones who should have the extra. They're unwilling to pass on this blessing to the rest, but David, as a merciful leader, has other plans. Verse 23 But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. See, David has a theological reason for the extra, for sharing the extra. It's because the Lord had given it to them. It's the theology of grace that keeps his eyes in the gifts that are given by God. And see, David sees this and teaches it to his men to submit themselves to the graciousness of their God. The men men want to function in a covenant of works. You don't battle, you don't get anything. And as pointed out by David, they deny that it was the Lord then that was providing for them. In verse 26, when David came to Ziglag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. David goes even further to send back gifts to the elders of Judah. And the list is verses 27 through 31, and I'll leave it for you to decipher those names on your own time. Do you see the faithfulness of our God? God is faithful to redeem. This last week, two stats have stuck out to me in the U.S. First, as of this year, the U.S. combined household wealth set a new record surpassing 100 trillion dollars the richest we've ever been and two in the US suicide rates have climbed to the highest it's been in the last 30 years in the last week the US i don't know if you've heard is reeling the those in culture in the world reeling with the news that two very popular two very successful people took their lives Kate Spade, world-renowned handbag designer, and Anthony Bordeaux, and a world-renowned chef, ended their lives this week. Within days of each other. And the world is trying to piece together what happened. Questions of, how could this happen? I mean, from the outside, people think they had everything. They had all that They needed. But for many reasons, all of what they had wasn't enough. I've been reading lately Ecclesiastes again. And came across a great album from someone on our worship team. And reading the book Ecclesiastes and listening to the album Modern Post has reminded me again that we need to find our hope in God and God alone. I need this reminder. I need it every day. I needed to be reminded by you, church, and I need to remind you. One of the songs in this album resonated me with me this week and entitled, It's Not Enough. The song finds its roots in Ecclesiastes, and he writes, he says, Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander, the towers of ivory rose beneath my feet. Were palaces of pleasure mine to wander, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name and honor and truest love was always by my side, my praise is sung by grateful sons and daughters. My soul would never be satisfied. It's not enough. I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. The world is not enough. We won't find what we need here. It's not enough. We can be praised. We can be liked. We can be admired. And friend, it's not enough. We can have lots of kids that love us and a family that that never wants to leave one another, supporting and loving and caring. And it's not enough. We can have the success that the world would love to have the prestige, the respect, the admiration from people, and it's not enough. We can seek to serve everyone, giving our lives, giving our stuff, giving our time to people, and friends, it's not enough. You can try for the next 50 years to find your worth, to find your satisfaction, to find your identity, but it's not enough. It will never be enough. You'll always be looking for more because it's not enough. Because you were made for more. Your home is not on earth. And every person that's created has a deep desire where they want to fully belong. A place where we are safe and secure, a place where we're loved. And usually that place is home. We long for a home, not a house. A home. A home is where you, where you fit in. A home is where you are totally accepted. Home is where you can let your hair down, where you can be yourself. A home is a place where sights and sounds and smells just fit. And in your search for for this home, for peace, for rest, for comfort, you neglect the truth that it cannot be found in this world. And you need a place, and that place is in our Father's home. Your desire for the Father's home is very strong. You just haven't realized it yet. You can't put your finger on it. But that's what you've been after. And what does it mean to be home? It means the wandering is over. And you have complete satisfaction. Your home is only in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can bring contentment for life. See, the the reason the best marriages and the best careers and the best earthly joys always leave us restless is because God refreshes us along the way along the journey with some of these pleasant stops along the way these are there to encourage us to not mistake them for home the good things in life still won't fully satisfy us because they're just way stations they're just inns along the way they're not home we need a home we're made for eternity. Jesus said in John's gospel, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Friends, this world is not enough. No matter where you search, where you go, where you live, what you do, this world is not enough. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you are searching for something. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come here today. C.S. Lewis is quoted saying, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He's right. You're not made for this world. You're made for the world to come. And you need to repent of your search in anything other than God and believe in him. Jesus is the way. He's always been the way. And there's this great gulf between you and home, between you and rest. And the answer is not more money. The answer is not a better job, better town, better spouse, better kids, better friends or success. It's not this better, better, better. No, this gulf that robs you of a home is sin and death. That is what has separated you from home. And what Jesus says to us, that he's going to bridge this gulf between you and your home. And he tells us in the gospels that he's headed to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. And he's going to set up the way that we can go home. Because without Jesus, without his sacrifice, you could never find your way. This is the connection between God and man. The only way home is through the cross of Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and this is you, I want to talk with you. I want to sit down and, and explain this to you because I want you to find home and realize it and that you can stop striving for your best life now, and you can come rest in Jesus. And he's calling you this morning to repent and to trust in him because he is enough. He is more than enough. And for my believing friends here this morning who are traveling through this world with me, remember Jesus said just a few verses later in John 14, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. He's coming back for us. He will not forget us. And when we get home, our eternal home, it will be wholly satisfying. John also wrote for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, we're not home yet. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the reminder in your word yet again that you are faithful to us. Even when we make a mess of things, God, you are faithful. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. But you have us. May we be reminded yet again of your faithfulness to us. May we, like David in this passage, look to strengthen ourselves in you. May we run to you in the midst of trouble and run to your word. That is where we find our strength. That is where we find peace and hope. Help us, Father. Help us also as we leave this place as believers to to go into the world, those that we have contact with, and that we could share the hope that we have. Help us as parents that are sitting here that we can disciple our kids into the gospel that they can understand it that they can live it they can love it and they'll be bold to share it. Father I'm reminded yet again that there's many that are surrounding us right now that are not home that are struggling and some on the brink of ending their lives because they have no hope God help us not to to hoard this truth to ourselves, but help us to give it, to give it away. Help us to be faithful to the task of sharing this truth with those who desperately need it. Help us to to be reminded and to tell others that our hope is in Christ alone. It is only through him that we can have peace. It's only through him that we can stop striving, And it's only through him that we can live forever with you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.